You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today we're finishing a series that we've titled God and Sexuality. This is a series where we've been talking about God's intent and His design for marriage and for gender and sexuality. And so before we dive into this text, uh, I just want to, uh, I want, to t- I want to be up front with you and tell you where we're going this morning, and then I want to pray for our time together. Um, it is impossible to have a conversation around God's design for human sexuality and, and not talk about uh, the, or address the reality of homosexuality and uh, same-sex attraction. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I just want to say a couple of things before we move forward, and then I'll pray for our time. Um, I realize that as soon as I say that's where we're going this morning, um, that, that might create some tension in the room, and it might make some of you uncomfortable for different reasons. Um, but I just want to be really clear, um, just to kind of set the tone for our time together today, that after 17 years of pastoral ministry, um, I have come to the realis- realization that when you're talking about the, the reality of homosexuality, you're not just talking about an issue that we have to deal with, you're talking about people. Okay, And so I love Preston Sprinkle's book. Uh, um, also, that's just a great name, Preston Sprinkle. Um, if you're looking for baby names, um, but I, I just, I love this book. I would, I would heartily, the pastors would heartily recommend this book to you. Um, the, the title of this book is people to be loved. And I love the subtitle is why homosexuality is not just an issue. Like we're talking about people here. We're talking about real people and souls who are made in the image of God. And, and, uh, and so I, I just want to be clear about that. This is about people. And so for some of you, this is about your family. It's about your friends, it's about your neighbors, your co-workers, your sons and daughters. And for some of you, maybe in the room, you're like, it's not about those people, it's about me. Um, um, and so, you know, if you're here this morning and you would describe yourself as openly gay, um, or you're someone who is same-sex attracted and you've never told anybody that because you're scared to death the church is going to reject you, your missional community is going to reject you, your friends and family are going to reject you, then I just want to be really clear with you. Um, on behalf of the pastors and members of this church, that we love you, um, and you're welcome here. If you can't be here, I can't be here, okay? And so um, we, uh, our commitment to you and to everybody in this city is that this really will be, as a family, a safe place for you to be known, belong, and be loved. And that's true even if you don't quite believe or, or agree with everything that we teach, okay? We want you here. Um, and so I want to be really, really thoughtful, even in how I talk about this this morning, um, obviously, there's no way I can say everything that, that could be said today about this. And so um, if, if something I say raises questions or concerns or you have questions or concerns, feel free to come talk to me, Jared, Luke, Chuck, one of our pastors. We'd be happy to serve you any way that we can. I also uh, brought with me a stack of books. As you can see, um, if you would like to uh, you know, look through those, if you want to grow and how to engage this conversation, which I think we all um, have room for that. Okay, so... That's just my first introduction. Uh, let me pray, and then I'll hop into my second introduction, okay? Everybody clear about where we're going? All right, let's do this. Let me, let's, let's pray together. Um, yeah, so Father, we, uh, we need your help. Um, we always do. I need your help. I always do. 
So I just pray, God, that um, you would create such a safe um, container for us to engage in this conversation. And that container is, of course, your grace and your love, which wants to save us and change us. And so, um, God, we just welcome you into this place. We pray that you would remove any barrier that we've uh, put up. Um, Help us to clearly hear your word and respond in repentance and faith where we need to. And help us, God, to embrace Jesus as the all-saving and satisfying object of the human heart. He's the one we truly need. So open our eyes to see him and embrace him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Philip Yancey uh, is a well-known Christian thinker and author, and in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Yancey tells a story about his experience in 1987 at a gay pride march uh, that he was invited to with a friend um, in Washington, D.C., and so he attends this, and he says that on one side of the street, there's this large crowd made up of members of the gay community, and they're there you know, to protest and to fight for what they believe is a justice issue around gay rights. And then he says that on the other side of the street, there's this large crowd of people who claim to be Christians, and they're there to protest against the gay community. And so Yancey says it doesn't take long, obviously, for this thing to take a turn uh, for the worse and for things to get ugly. And so this religious group starts shouting all these derogatory things at the gay community, and then members of the gay community begin to respond with hostility, and they're saying their own things, and so the police are just trying to do everything they can to keep this from busting into an all-out riot. But then Yancey says that all of a sudden, in the midst of the chaos, something really unexpected happens. He's watching this, and he says that there's this small group from the gay community, and they stand and they face um, uh, this religious group, And they began to sing the old Sunday school song, Jesus Loves Me. And eventually what happens is this begins to catch on. And before you know it, you have this massive group from the homosexual community and they're singing uh, Jesus Loves Me while Christians Christians, uh, stand on the other side of the street and shout um, mean and derogatory things about why these people deserve to go to hell. And so here's Yancey's commentary on this as he stands back and watches this thing happen. He says, The abrupt ironies in that scene of confrontation struck me. On the one side were Christians defending pure doctrine, and on the other side were sinners, many of whom openly admit to homosexual practice. Yet the more orthodox groups spewed out hate while the other groups sang of Jesus' love. So I begin with that story because I think it makes a clear and powerful point about where we are in this cultural moment. As I speak, as I stand up here speaking, there's probably uh, nothing more controversial or emotionally charged than the conversation around the Bible, the church, and homosexuality. And the, the reality, what you have to realize is that we are living currently in what sociologists have described as an all-out culture war over your sexuality. And it's really important for me to start here and spend a few minutes here because you need to understand um, that, that the way you think and feel about this issue, remember it's not just an issue, it's about people, but the way you think and feel about this is being shaped and conditioned and formed by the culture in two totally different directions. Okay, so let me, let's talk about this for a second. You have two basic sides um, on this war. On the one side of the culture, you have what is sometimes called the progressive view. I can put this on the screen for you. Um, progressive view, it goes by other names as well, but this is a view that's essentially affirming of same-sex relationships. 
and primarily views this as an issue of injustice. Um, Marshall Kirk, who's a Harvard-trained social scientist and gay rights activist, wrote a book called After the Ball. You can buy it for like $90 on Amazon if, you just, if your heart so desires. Uh, but After the Ball documents the history of the gay rights movement. And so what started with the Stonewall riots in New York City in 1969 and the Gay Liberation Front in the 70s eventually culminates, Kirk says, in this thing in February of 1998 called uh, the, the War Conference. Okay, and the War Conference is where affirming, gay-affirming organizations from all over the country come together and uh, basically develop a three-point strategy for how to advance um, the gay rights movement and defeat the moral majority. And Kirk documents this whole thing in his book. Okay, this is, again, this is one side of the culture war. Um, Kirk unpacks the street, three strategies they came up with. Strategy number one, desensitize Americans to gay relationships. Strategy number two, jam up all opposition. And number three, convert popular opinion. So desensitize. Let me give you just a couple of quotes from this book. And, and listen, I'm not trying to moralize this or attack anybody. I'm presenting this as historical fact. This is, this is just what happened. Okay. Um, Kirk says this, uh, we want a continuous flood of gay related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. Seek, de- seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. Okay, second strategy is jamming or blocking the resistance. And so it was decided, Kirk said, quote, that anybody who challenges the legitimacy of the gay community is wicked and should be punished. Okay, goal number three uh, is to convert American opinion. And the goal, Kirk says here, is conversion, quote, conversion of the American average Americans' emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media. Okay, there's a lot I could say about this. I mean, I'm I'm stepping into a whole pile here. Um, There's a lot I could say about this, uh, but people have studied this. A lot of people have studied this, and they have concluded this is the most successful cultural shift in the history of the world. Uh, To take... uh, to take homosexuality from the fringe of, of American moral life and move it into the center of pop culture is just a radical shift that has taken place. And you have to understand that for many people, this was, this was the most important cause of their life because this is about justice. And I want to be honest, I'm sympathetic toward that. A part of me is very sympathetic toward that, okay? Um, but even some on the progressive side are now starting to write about how they're worried about where this is headed, so Andrew Sullivan, who's a very thoughtful um, gay man, who's also a journalist, wrote an article recently titled, The Gay Rights Movement is Undoing Its Best Work. And, um, and Sullivan, he argues in this, in this article that um, labeling those who disagree and are not affirming as wicked and seeking to punish them is leading to all kinds of oppression and intolerance and injustice that's coming out of his own community. Okay? So that's one side of the issue. On the other side of the culture war, you have what's called the historic view. Okay, the historic view, we can put it on the screen for you, says that homosexual practice is a sin and views this primarily as an issue of immorality. And sadly, um, we've seen plenty of oppression and intolerance and injustice coming from this side. And so what happened basically is um, the, the, in the late 80s and 90s, you see this rallying cry from conservative religious leaders 
who say that we should go to war, that's the language they use, go to war with the gay community. And some of these quotes I can't even read, like the ones from Fred Phelps. Um, but here, here are a few others from prominent leaders in this movement. Okay, Put these on the screen. Um, we should blame homosexuals for every social problem in America. That sounds a lot like Hitler's message. Um, AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Uh, someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we don't act now, so this is called like take up arms, man. If we don't act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way, and our nation will pay a terrible price. Um, how about this one? Tinky Winky is gay. Um, there's Tinky Winky. That's, I mean, so, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Tinky Winky's gay. This one really sums it up right here. Um, Gays and lesbians are the ultimate enemy. You feel the weight of that? Okay. You have all these political religious leaders pastoring and encouraging people in the moral majority that we should literally hate and declare war against people who are same-sex attracted or affirming of same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships. And one of the most heartbreaking things about this is you have a lot of people who are far from God who are assessing the church in a lot of this culture war and missing the invitation from Jesus to come and experience life because what they're experiencing from the church doesn't sound and feel like good news. And and Peter Hubbard, who's a pastor, critiques the church, and he just writes about this. Here's what he says. Peter Hubbard says this. As in any revolution, the temptation is to join up with the frenzy and begin shooting at whoever we are told is the enemy. And soon the church can become defined by what we are against and whom we oppose, and as a result, the gospel gets lost in the fray. Guys, this is what Yancey describes at this march in 87. This... Listen, the, the, the temptation, okay, this is what happens. Let's be honest about this. We've all done this, whether it's with homosexuality or something else. The temptation is you and I get all caught up in this war against flesh and blood, and we lose sight of the gospel, and then we demonize people, um, and, and we think that we're better than them just because they disagree with us or they sin differently than we do. Right? This is what happens. And listen, the fact is... Historically, you, you cannot dodge this. You got, we got some owning to do. The fact is, historically, this is how much of the church has responded to homosexuals in our country, and I'm just presenting this as the facts. And so what this means for the church, I can't speak for you personally, but what this means for the church is that we need to repent where we have not loved people well. And if you're in this room or you're listening on podcast and you are same-sex attracted and you've been hurt or mistreated by the church, man, on behalf of the pastors and members of this church, I just want to say I'm sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. That, that is not an accurate representation of the God that we worship and serve, and I hope that you can find it in your heart to forgive us. And if you're in this room and you're a disciple of Jesus, here's what this means for you. It means that you're an ambassador and a representative of Jesus. Do you realize that? which means that you're called to be the extension of his heart and hands and feet 
and to carry out his mission on earth. And the way you do that, by the way, is you're called to love your neighbor as yourself and to share and bring good news to those who are far from God. Especially, by the way, those who are far from God and have been mistreated and marginalized by religious people, according to the New Testament I read. And so, boil it all down, and I'm not, I, mean, I haven't even got to the text yet, okay? Boil it all down. Here, here's what I want to say to us this morning, okay? Here's what this means for us. Um, as disciples of Jesus, instead of allowing ourselves to be shaped and formed by the culture on this issue, you and I desperately need to be shaped and formed by the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is not all hammer and all judgment or all accepting and all affirming of whatever you want to do. But the way of Jesus is this beautiful, mysterious blending of the tension between conviction held together with compassion. Truth held together with love. And so, listen, I, I don't care if your view on something is right. If you don't have love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you're just a destructive force. And you need to write this down. To be right the wrong way is to be wrong. Okay? You hear me? To be right the wrong way is to be wrong. Um, That's why Paul says you speak the truth in love. Now, on the other side of that coin, to have love with no truth is is not real love. It's not honest. It's fake. It's sentimentality. It just, it doesn't work. And so... But the big idea here this morning for us is in order for us to be the church and the faithful witness God has called us to be in this cultural moment, we have to embrace the way of Jesus, which holds conviction with compassion, truth with love. In light of that, here's what I want to try to do. And I do not have time to do this. Here's what I want to try to do. Under conviction, I want to, just, I want to answer two big questions. Under conviction and truth, I want to ask the big question, what does the Bible actually say about same-sex relationships? So we can get a clear conviction on that. And then underneath love and compassion, I want to ask the question, how do we love and serve those who are same-sex attracted like Jesus does? Okay, because he loves everybody. Y'all with me? All right, first question. Let's do this. What does the Bible actually say about same-sex relationships? And I just want to invite you to buckle up because I'm going to do this fast. Um, And I want to just have a thoughtful, careful look at the scriptures together. Please be patient with me because uh, some of this is very technical and this is going to be way more teachy than a typical sermon. But I think that's necessary in this situation. This is one of those sermons you need to go back and just listen to. Okay, so I want to start with the Bible starts on sexuality, which is in the book of Genesis. So go to Genesis chapter two. If you already closed your Bible and let's just start in verse 15. We'll read to verse 25. Okay, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed it up with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, He had taken out of the man, and he brought uh, her to the man. The man said, now he's going to bust out into song. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked, 
And they felt no shame. So in this text, God gives us an account of how he designed the world and how he made things to flourish. And he also gives us an introduction to human gender and sexuality. And the key phrase we have to deal with in this passage is the phrase suitable helper. Okay, the Bible builds its entire sexual ethic out of this phrase. And the question is, what does it mean when there is no suitable helper for Adam, so God has to create one for him? What, what would make for a suitable helper? Okay, the progressive opinion says that what God needed was not necessarily um, a woman, but another human. Right? Help a brother out. He's surrounded by animals. It's just not going to do it. Right? So he needs another human. And so the progressive view says that the emphasis here is not really on Eve's gender, but on her humanity that makes her a suitable helper. And therefore, this verse says that someone who is same-sex attracted doesn't have to be with the opposite gender because they're not attracted to them. They can have a suitable helper in their own gender. As long as it's human, it's suitable. Okay, that's the key issue. But the next question you have to really ask is, okay, but is Eve's humanness the only thing that makes her a suitable helper? I'm just going to tell you that our view as pastors and as a church is that, that we believe her femaleness plays a defining role in this, and we're just basing that off of the meaning of, of this Hebrew word. Okay? So one scholar says this, and hang on, it's about to get really technical. Okay? Put this on the screen for you. Um, the word translated suitable by the NIV is konegdo, and it's used only here in the Old Testament. And it's somewhat difficult to translate in English because it's a compound word made up of ke, which means as or like, and neged, which means opposite or against. And together, the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. It's a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as the perfect partner for Adam. And so what, what he's saying is that what this Hebrew word is getting at is that God has actually made Eve for Adam, and what makes her suitable for him is that she is like him in her humanity, but she's different from him in her gender. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a suitable helper, then the author could have used a, a different word, a different phrase that just means like, but that's not what you have here. This word literally means that she's like him in her humanness, opposite him in her femaleness, and that's literally fundamentally what makes her a suitable partner for him. Okay, and, and, and the other sensitive kind of crucial part of this is this. The author of Genesis goes on in verse 24 and he says, Therefore, um, for this reason then, since God has made them male and female, both like and opposite, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so it's in their human likeness and opposite gender that we see God's basic design and definition of marriage in this passage. It all comes out of what this word suitable means. Um, and so if you want a definition of marriage according to Genesis 2, here it is. God creates one man and one woman for one whole life union. And that's his plan, according to Genesis 2, for marriage and sexuality. This is why, by the way, you see Jesus quoting this verse when he's asked about marriage in Matthew 19. So um, sometimes it's said, you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so therefore he couldn't be against it. And that's true. He never said anything about it uh, explicitly. But here's what he did do. 
When Jesus is asked about divorce in Matthew 19, he uses that almost like a pulpit to preach his view of marriage and sex. And Jesus defines marriage. He, he, all he does is quote Genesis 2. We can put it on the screen, the text, Matthew 19. He quotes Genesis 2, and he defines marriage as one man, one woman, for one whole life union. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And he sees that from Genesis 2 as the template for all people, all marriages, all times. And then Jesus goes on and says, hey, any sexual activity that happens, by the way, outside of the context of that one man, one woman covenant relationship is porneia, which is a word that means sexual immorality. So for the record, that's homosexual or heterosexual immorality. Anything that happens outside of the context of that marriage union as designed by God in Genesis 2, Jesus says, is sexually immoral. And so Jesus takes his view of marriage and sex straight out of God's design and creation. And, and I'm, I know what some of you may say, like, you're being biased. I'm really not uh, trying to be biased. I'm just trying to treat the Bible as fairly and as carefully as I can and be honest about how these words are used and what it's saying to us about our sexuality. Um, and, the, and so as you move forward, okay, let's keep going through the kind of the, the scriptures. Um, when you compare Jesus, uh, when you compare Genesis and Jesus with the rest of the Scripture, you see the same consistent view of marriage and sex throughout the whole Scripture. And I'll be much quicker on these examples, but I just want to give you a, a few more passages and then a sentence or two on arguments from the progressive side, and then I'll give you my response. Um, Leviticus eighteen twenty two and twenty thirteen say this. Put it on the screen, Leviticus. Um, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That's detestable. And um, if a man has sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their heads. Um, believe it or not, these verses have generated some controversy in recent years. Um, that was a joke. Uh, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> You also get the death penalty for breaking the Sabbath and dishonoring your parents, and so we can talk about that. Um, the, the main argument, okay, from the progressive side is that, that these verses don't apply to us today because this is the Old Testament and we're in the New Covenant, um, and really we're just picking and choosing which Old Testament laws to apply. Okay, because Leviticus also says you can't eat shellfish or wear blended fabric or cut your sideburns. Okay, so that seems like a valid point. Uh, but keep your shirts on, those of you who are wearing blended fabric, uh, um, because here, here's what you have to understand, okay? And, and again, this is going to be a bit technical, but you need to know this if you're going to be equipped to read your Bible, okay? So um, there are three kinds of laws in the Old Testament, okay? There's the ceremonial law, which deals with the temple and sacrificial system. There's the civil law, which sets Israel apart as a nation state governed by God. And then you have the moral law, which is rooted in God's character and in, in creation. Ceremonial law no longer applies to us because the temple and sacrificial system have been fulfilled in Jesus. That's why you don't bring a goat with you on Sundays to sacrifice it, okay? Um, we're no longer bound by the civil law because God doesn't have a nation state on earth anymore. Jesus has created what Paul calls a new Israel, made up of people who follow him from among the nations. But the moral law is different. Okay, the moral law of God is true for all people in all places and all times. And this is what carries over from the Old Testament to the New because it's a moral code that's written into the fabric of creation. It's part of God's design. And, and it flows out of who he is and how he's designed life to work best for us. And so when you read Leviticus 18 and 20 in context, 
You'll see all kinds of other moral laws that we still uphold. I'll put them on the screen for you, okay? Laws about incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, oppressing your neighbor, showing partiality, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute. And then you have this moral command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't think we want to throw any of those commands out and say they no longer apply just because they're in the Old Testament and you don't have to wear blended fabric anymore or you're commanded not to wear blended fabric. Is this, am I making my point clear? Like, these verses about homosexual practice are right in the middle of all these other moral commands that we would be crazy not to keep. Okay? And so that's Leviticus 18 and 20 in its proper context. You just have to understand that. Lastly, uh, two texts, well, three texts from Paul. Um, we're only really going to look at one of them. But let's start, and what does Paul have to say about this? Okay? Let's look at Romans 1 together quickly. Just three verses here. Um, the context, by the way, Paul's arguing, we all, all of us, have rebelled against God and exchanged the Creator for creation. And, and Paul sees this as the undoing of the natural order. And he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, uh, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here Paul describes both lesbian and male homosexual behavior as unnatural. Okay, that's the key phrase here, unnatural. And the progressive interpretation on this is that unnatural refers to a person's sexual orientation. You following me? So the practice Paul's rejecting then is not just any homosexual behavior, but heterosexual men and women going against their natural orientation to engage in homosexuality. However, um, as attractive as that interpretation may be for some, context always determines meaning. And in context, Paul's not talking about what feels natural and unnatural. He's talking about the natural order of God's design and creation. And I know that because uh, every scholar agrees on that, by the way. Um, Romans 1 is filled with echoes to Genesis 2. It always goes back to Genesis 2. Um, the whole context of Romans 1 is about creation. Go read it for yourself. Um, so it's clear that Paul's reference po- his reference point for what is suitable or appropriate sexual behavior is, is what comes out of the creation account in Genesis 2. And here's, here's Paul's point. Okay? Here's his point in Romans 1. Uh, men and women who engage in same-sex behavior, even if they're being true to their own desires, have gone against the natural order of God's design. Okay? Another argument, though, from the progressive view is that what Paul's really condemning here uh, is not monogamous, committed, consensual, long-term, same-sex relationships. Okay? Um, they're saying that what he's condemning here is coercive, sexually abusive relationships, like slave-master exploitation, prostitution, men taking advantage of boys, and that certainly happened in Paul's world. Um, but responding to that, again, just dealing with what's in the text... Paul is talking about consensual activity because he says in the text they were filled with passion for one another. So this is not 
um, this is not one party, you know, wanting this and another party not wanting it. And if Paul wanted to talk about those kind of abusive relationships, there's plenty of words he could have used. Uh, some may say that Paul's condemning hookup culture. So he's condemning people hopping on Tinder and just like having as many partners as they can. Um, and, and Paul didn't really have a category for monogamous same-sex love. And listen, just I, can, I don't have time. But if you want to nerd on, out on that, I can talk to you at length about that. Um, Aristotle, Plato, lots of people. That was in, the, the concept of same-sex monogamous relationships was in, as infused in their pop culture as it is in ours. So it's just not true that he didn't have a framework for that. So to sum up, uh, when Paul talks about what's natural or unnatural sexually in Romans 1, he's not talking about orientation. He's not talking about exploitation. He's not talking about promiscuity. He's talking about gender. And he's pulling from Genesis and he's pulling from Jesus um, to talk about God's design for sex and marriage. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we, can, we can put it on the screen, but I'm going to let you read 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 on your own. Um, there's a debate about two Greek words that Paul uses, and if you want to nerd out on that with me later, I'm happy to do that with you. But for now, I just want to close this, this section. Again, we're just asking the question, what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships? And I want to close this section with a quote from Luke Timothy Johnson, who is a gay-affirming New Testament professor. Okay, Here's what he says about the progressive view, which is his own view, mind you. Quote, The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says, to appeal to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation in this case is straightforward. We know what the text says. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience, in the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality. At least he's being honest. Um, Dr. Johnson says the only way you can hold the progressive view is to say, in essence, I know what the Bible says about this, and I'm going to reject it and go a different direction anyway. Which, let's be honest, we've all done that. We're going to talk about that in a second, by the way. Nobody in this room's off the hook. Um, now, maybe at this point, though, some of you are going, wait a minute now, Dr. Johnson said something else important, too. He said that, that he raised a good question, like, does God create people this way? Are people born gay? Um, I want to read to you what the American Psychological Association says about this. Okay, here's a quote. Um, There's no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has been examined, has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. And I think that's probably true. Okay, There's never been a discovery of a gay gene. Um, So I wouldn't say that... I would not say that you can prove that people are born gay, but I also... It also seems like orientation is not always a choice. Now... What you do with your orientation and your desires uh, is a choice. 
But I'll say that sexual orientation seems to be developed more than it's something you choose. Um, I mean, just if, if, you were to, if you're heterosexual and you were to turn around and ask yourself the question, I mean, just think about these questions. Like, if I were to ask you what caused your heterosexuality, man, I don't know. That was, I don't know. Uh, if I were to ask you, you know, when and how did you first choose to be heterosexual, what would you say? I have no idea. I took one look at Topanga and I knew. Like, I just, I don't know. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I have no idea. I just looked at Kelly Kapowski and I was like, I'm straight. I don't know. I have no, I don't know. Did I choose that? No, I didn't choose that. It just, just came out of me, right? Just naturally attracted to them. And so I just want to be really clear about this. Like, I just want you got to, we have to be sensitive and listen, it's so offensive. These guys write a lot about this. It's so offensive to say you choose to be gay. Let's just stop. Let's just, this language is just not helpful. It's not biblical. It's not helpful. Um, listen, I, I would go so far as to say that orientation and attraction are not sinful according to the scriptures. Again, what you, do with your, what you do with your desires in your mind and with your body is what causes the sin. You follow the logic in James. James says there's a desire that gives birth to sin. Okay, that's the logic. And so just because an attraction is biological doesn't mean you can act on it, right? God gives us boundaries for what we do with our desires, not because he's trying to rob us of joy, but because he loves us and he knows how life works best for us. And so the question we all have to ask, you know, whether you're same-sex attraction, heterosexual attraction, whatever, the question we all have to ask is not if this feels right to me, then why won't God let me have it and do it? The question we all have to ask ourselves is, is God who he says he is, and can I trust that he loves me and knows what's best for me in his word? Okay? And to the point of God's love, I want to transition to my last section here, okay? And I want to just ask the question, um, how do we love and serve those who are same-sex attracted like Jesus does? How do we hold our convictions with the compassion of Christ? And I just want to say two principles of love from the way of Jesus, and we're done, okay? So principle number one um, in terms of how to love people like Jesus, when you are engaging with any human being about anything, always lead with the basic human need to be loved, not with morality or the need to change behaviors. And this is just following the way of Jesus, guys. I want you to see the beauty of how Jesus treats people. Because in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus stands up on a mountain and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and gives the highest ethical standards you've ever heard of, including our sexuality. This is the, this is the sermon where he says things like, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If you've looked at a person lustfully, you've done the deed. And then when he finishes teaching, he comes down off the mountain and you would expect him to maybe like be untouchable and to only you know, not associate with immoral people in light of what he just said. But the first thing Jesus does when he comes off the mountain is he meets this Roman centurion and he has compassion on him and he heals his servant. And you have to, what do you have to understand about these guys? These were military leaders who worked for Caesar and were known to be violent and oppressive. And on top of that, they were pagan and didn't believe in God. Was Jesus against those things? Absolutely. Is that where Jesus started his relationship with this guy? No. Jesus doesn't say, hey man, I want to heal your servant and I want to take care of you, but are you aware of my position on violence? 
He just has mercy on the guy. He just brings the kingdom of God to bear on this guy, and, and, and his love just, it just melts this guy. The, the centurion goes, goes on and calls him Lord, like surrenders his life to him. Then he pursues Matthew, the tax collector, just walks right up to him and engages him. And here's, here's what one scholar says about the tax collectors. A modern-day parallel to a first-century tax collector might be a pimp who's also a drug dealer who runs a porn studio on the side and funnels his profits to support terrorism around the world. Now, what would you say if you stumbled into someone like this? Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. He doesn't say, all right, you're a tax collector. Are you aware of my position on extortion? Like then, you know, let's change that about you and then you can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. No, listen, Jesus just says, come, follow me. And now, like, 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 don't get me wrong, I have to think that at some point in the context of their relationship, Jesus says to Matthew, like, hey, bro, about this whole tax collector gig, like, let's talk about that. But that's not where he starts. It's never where he starts because Jesus understands that what heals and transforms the human heart is the love and grace of God. It's never the law. You go read Romans. It's never the law. It's powerless to change you. All it does is prove you need a savior, right? It's never about the law. Tons of examples, guys. Zacchaeus, the sinful woman who washes his feet, the adulterous woman, the woman at the well, Saul of Tarsus. It's just, it's crazy that Jesus taught the highest moral standards and had a reputation of being a friend of sinners to the point that he was even accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And you know what? Sinners loved Jesus because they knew he loved them first and they felt loved by him. And so if you're in this room or you're in our city and you're same-sex attracted, what does this mean for you at the crossing? Well, Three things. I'll put it on the screen. Number one, it means our only agenda with you is to love you and share good news with you, not change you. Um, that's not our job. It's not our job to do that. Um, we're not going to say, hey, you can participate in the life of our church, but you need to first be made aware of our position on marriage and sexuality. Uh, we're going to say, come on in. We have good news for you. Okay? You can struggle right along with the rest of us. Number two, it means that this is truly a place where you can find the community and the deeper affirmation that you're longing for. Okay, our pastors, our MCs, our DNA groups will be a safe place for you to be honest about your struggles, to share your story, and to, to trust that whatever you say is not going to be held against you. Like, we're here to listen. We're here to love you. We're here to pray for you. We're here to bear your burdens. We're here to encourage you. This is a place where you can find community and the deeper affirmation you long for. And finally, it means that this is a place where you can, you can learn to step into your true God-given identity. Okay, we live in a culture that tells you that you're defined by your sexuality. And so that means if you're a teenage boy, um, you sleep with a girl, you're a man. Um, if you're a woman, you're pretty much reduced to your body. And if you have same-sex orientation, you're gay. And I just want to tell you right now that, um, that, that the truth is that actually devalues you as a person. You are so much more than your sexual desires and your sexuality. You are created in the image of God. You are seen by God and loved by God. Yes, your desires are part of you, but they don't get at the heart of who you are, and they certainly aren't big enough to hold the weight of your identity. Okay? So our prayer for every person in Northeast Arkansas is that you would find your identity in the truth that God created you. 
He sees you. He loves you in spite of your sin, and he gave himself up for you to bring you into relationship with himself. That's where you'll find the freedom, the forgiveness, the wholeness, the salvation, the satisfaction you're longing for. And so I know I'm running long. Let me land the plane here. I said two principles, right? Didn't I? Of Jesus' love. Here's the last one. Um, the second one is, if you want to love people like Jesus, it's also going to start with you having a deep awareness of your own sin and your need for Jesus. Okay? Um, the Bible says homosexual practice is sinful, but it does not single it out or elevate it above other sin. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul puts it right in the middle in a list of heterosexual adultery, lust, idolatry, greed, drunkenness, slander. Who wants to plead not guilty, right? Um, and so you've got to realize in the kingdom of God, there is no us and them divide. Um, we're all a group of imperfect people standing in need of one perfect Savior, and that's Jesus. And that must create such humility and such compassion and such grace in the way we relate to other people, treat one another, and especially even in the way we disagree with one another. And so in closing, like here's the thing I've just been arguing for the last probably 50 minutes, okay? Um, our prayer as pastors is that the Crossing Church would be known as a place of clear conviction held with deep compassion for all people. Every man, woman, and child, right? That's what we say. Every man, woman, and child, we want this to be a place where they can come in and encounter the truth and the love of Jesus. And as we transition to communion, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on back up. Um, as we transition to communion, nowhere um, do you see the truth and love of Jesus um, and the conviction and compassion of God held together more powerfully than you do in the cross of Christ. The cross is the place where truth and love and justice and mercy kiss because the, the cross is the place that tells us the truth about ourselves. The truth is we are all sinners. We have all taken God's boundaries that he has put on us and we have tried our best to redraw and redefine them and we have attempted to fire him as king so that we can in turn be the boss of our own lives. And that, no matter what your background is, that's the definition of sin. Sin is not about specific moral behaviors. It's about a heart posture that says, I don't care what your boundaries are. I don't care what you say about what works best for me. I'm going to run my own life. And I know, I know better than you, right? I know what's best for me. I'm going to be the king of my own life. And I'm going to punish anybody that gets in the way of that. That's sin. And the reality is if God is good, he must punish sin. And so we deserve God's punishment. We deserve his justice. The good news, however, is that God is also a God of love and mercy. And he loves sinners so much that he finds a way at the expense of his own life on the cross of Christ to satisfy his truth and his justice and his love and his compassion for sinners. And God himself takes the punishment we deserve in, in order to extend forgiveness and hospitality and welcome into his kingdom. And so if you're here this morning and you believe that, you agree with that, you're a Christian, and I want to invite you to come and celebrate uh, this meal with us. What we do at communion is we simply take one of these little wafers and we dip it in the juice, and um, the, the little bread wafer represents uh, Jesus' body that was broken for you. The juice represents his blood that was shed for you. And this is a proclamation that we are all in need of grace. You bring nothing to this table but your need of grace, and we all need Jesus. We have, a, by the way, a gluten-free option there in the back, um, my left and your right. And if you're in this room and, and you wouldn't say that's where you're at, you, you, don't, you don't agree with this good news about Jesus, you're not trusting in him, then we would just ask that, um, that you would stay in your seat and pray and wrestle with what would it mean for me to today hear God's voice and surrender my heart to Jesus. And if you want to talk more about that, uh, man, I'll, I'll be available after the service. Jared, Luke, Chuck, we would love to talk with you and, and pray with you.
I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray for us. Come and we'll sing one more song. So, Father in heaven, I do pray that you would come now in mercy, move toward us in love. I pray, God, that if anything that I've said um, is not from you, then you would cause it to be just rejected from our consciousness. And what needs to sink down deep into our hearts, I, I pray that you would cause that to happen. I pray ultimately you would bring all of us to a decision today that we would put our hope and our trust in Jesus for our identity, um, for our hope, for our life. And I pray these things in Christ's name.